This is Franchise Today, brought to you by FRM Solutions, providers of the best-in-class software solutions for franchise relationship management. Franchise Today is your destination for weekly information, conversations, and interviews with accomplished industry leaders, all of whom share best practices for sustainable growth and sensible franchising. Here now, your host, Stan Friedman, to kick off this week's podcast. And this is Franchise Today on Wednesday, August 14th, 2019. I'm Stan Friedman coming to you from home base, Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, many thanks again to Jonathan Barnett for joining us last week. You know, this young guy and his young company are on track to hit 500 units sooner than not. And the OxyFresh carpet cleaning concept seems to really have it together. We'll be keeping an eye on them globally and, of course, right here at home as they both continue on their successful growth trajectories. Christian Pillant and his team here in North Atlanta and Jonathan Barnett and the OxyFresh family out of Denver, Colorado. This week, we're going to be speaking with another franchise success story, Chris Grand Prix, chairman and CEO of Outdoor Living Brands, a company that is fully focused on all things that do with outdoor living. But first, as always, we kick things off in the front of the house by celebrating this week's franchise birthdays. So happy birthday wishes this week go out to Paula Powers, Jeff Sturgis, Terry Coker, Tim Courtney, Matthew DeBusk, Sandy Lechner, Joan Immediato, Leslie Hawks, Angelo Kroll, and Professor John Hayes. And also this week, in memory of the late, great Dick Rennick, we think about him as well as he would have turned 75 this coming Saturday. I also want to mention that Ryan Hicks and Zach Fishman are fast approaching the last leg of their franchise roadshow. And in fact, today's guest was a participant in that event just a few days ago, and we'll ask Chris about that too in just a minute. Right now, my satellite tracker shows that the tour bus has passed through Virginia, D.C., and Maryland, and should be in Philly right about now en route to the tri-state region of Connecticut, New Jersey, and New York. And from there, it's on to Cleveland and Toledo, Greater Detroit, Chicago, the Twin Cities, Omaha, KC, and then OKC to wrap things up. All that over the next two weeks. In all 45 days on the road, 20 states, more than 30 vlogs, and 50 podcasts, and amazingly, after a month of being roomies, living together on a tour bus, Zach Fishman and Ryan Hicks remain the best of friends. To me, that's the most amazing part of this story. Close quarters for that length of time, yet the two of them remain brothers. Well, let's park it there for right now as I introduce today's guest, Chris Grand Prix, who may give us a word or two himself from his perspectives as from his perspective as he had firsthand experience with the boys as they passed through and visited with him in Virginia. So first, a, wor- a word about today's guest. Chris Grand Prix is the chairman and CEO of Outdoor Living Brands. They are the franchisors of multiple concepts. Archideck, the world's leading designer and builder of custom decks, porches, sunrooms, patios, and outdoor living spaces, outdoor lighting perspectives, whose name kind of tells you all about it. It, It's pretty self-explanatory. Renew Crew, a cleaning and protection company caring for a wide variety of exterior surfaces at residential and commercial properties, and Conserva Irrigation, focused on the service and maintenance of sprinkler systems in a water-efficient manner. Outdoor Living Brands is also formerly the franchisors of Mosquito Squad, which they recently sold to Authority Brands at the end of last year. Chris sets the strategic direction for the company, including their growth through 250 existing franchisees across the brands. He's the scout for future acquisitions and proudly fosters a corporate culture of innovation and service, both internally and throughout the entire franchise culture. Chris Rampree, my friend, welcome to Franchise Today. Stan, thanks so much. It's it's great to be with you today and look forward to a fun conversation. It's been a while. You know, I've thought back as we were talking about in the green room before we went live. Time just gets away from us sometimes unintentionally. I can't imagine that it's been almost 10 years that we were in Tucson together at FranDev, which was then put on by Bob Gappett at uh, Management 2000, Frank Connect. Uh, I think Marty Greenbaum from Greenbaum Marketing was involved with it at that time. It's been a long haul, and yet that just seems like yesterday. It really does. And I, I, I was thinking back on that event in advance of, of our uh, chat today, and I realized how instrumental that particular event was in that 
some of the takeaways that I had from that session really helped us springboard and launch the development of Mosquito Squad into a, a more aggressive pace compared to what we've been on. So that that event in the history of outdoor living brands was was really important and really beneficial. And I think uh, it deserves a lot of credit for some of the success that we had with that concept. Well, we're going to talk about all of that and more today. But I ask every CEO and every founder and every president to rewind the tape for us about how franchising found them because it typically is an unintentional business. But before we go to that question, you just participated with uh, the Ryan Hicks Roadshow that I was just talking about. He and Zach Fishman winding their way around the country on a tour bus. What did that look like for you? That was a lot of fun. So they uh, they they rolled the bus up to our to our office, and as you said in the intro. You know, there's a lot of togetherness for four guys in terms of the Ryan and Zach as the hosts and the and the guys that are supporting their efforts in terms of the crew. Um, but we had a wonderful conversation. Uh, we set up uh, the studio in my office and and talked quite a bit about um, the history of the development of outdoor living brands. And I think we spent a lot of time on that on that podcast talking about the decision process the company and its shareholders went through last year when we. Uh, went to market and and initially had planned on recapitalizing the the entire business and then you know sometimes the market brings you options and alternatives that perhaps were a bit unexpected and it was for us which led to a decision to divest uh, Mosquito Squad to Authority Brands which had been recently acquired by Apex Partners and so we talked quite a bit about that process since I think um, you know building companies. And building a profile of a business that is attractive to the private equity community seems to be such a, a topic of interest across the franchising sector these days. And so we spent a lot of our discussion on that, uh, that, that journey we went through in the second half of 2018. And we'll talk some on that today as well. But that brings us to a great segue, Chris, to rewind the tape for the audience. You were a finance kind of guy before you were a franchise guy, if I remember correctly. So why don't you take us back in time to the inflection point that brought the intersection of whatever it was you were doing then and franchising uh, together. Yeah, it, it, it's, it is interesting because I think as you articulated in the opening, um, like many others in franchising, I didn't necessarily have a conscious decision that led me to get involved in, in an industry that I now um, really, really love and, and, and enjoy and find so satisfying. Most of my career before franchising, uh, I was an investment banker doing merger and acquisition advisory work, generally representing sellers in transactions when the time was right for an entrepreneur, a family-owned business, or perhaps a partnership who was ready to either outright sell their business or, in many cases, you know, sell a significant stake, um, a significant minority stake or a control stake in order to create a liquidity event and, and take some chips off the table, diversify their net worth. Um, I would run the sale process for businesses that were valued in the, you know, 20, generally 20 to $100 million range and really enjoyed it. Um, worked with talented entrepreneurs across all different industry sectors, from heavy equipment manufacturers to consumer products companies to technology businesses. And it was a really, really gratifying work whereby you not only build relationships with these entrepreneurs and learn their stories of how they, they develop their companies, but you were a key part of helping them position that business for sale, helping them navigate you know, transaction alternatives and the transaction process to ultimately get to a closing and, and see their labor and hard work and blood, sweat and tears rewarded at a, at a, at a closing. So I was with a boutique investment bank um, in Richmond, Virginia. Had uh, We went through a sale process ourselves to create a liquidity event for the partners. And it was, we were acquired by an insurance company that was uh, developing a wealth management platform to diversify themselves. We did sell-side M&A, generally for families and founders, but we also did transactions for you know, divestitures for private equity firms or corporations. But because we were heavily oriented on families and founders, and those families and founders typically needed help to manage the assets after a transaction, we had an insurance company acquire us to be a feeder system into their new wealth management team. 
And it was a no more than perhaps six months after that acquisition transpired that our new corporate parent was acquired. And when that deal closed, the new parent approached us and said, you know, they bought the business for the insurance assets. They weren't interested in wealth management. They weren't interested in investment banking. And they wanted to sell us the business back on the cheap. And I was uh, the, the youngest uh, managing director and partner in the group at the time. So the transaction had been important to me. But my ownership stake in the business wasn't as, as uh, significant as some of my other partners. And when I looked around the table, I realized that um, I wasn't sure they were going to be as motivated if we bought it back mm -hmm. and tried to build it back up in the years ahead. So I decided to transition out and uh, did not participate in the buyback of the firm. And that this was in 2005. And it led me to look for an opportunity where I could both invest in a business as well as play a role on the, the senior leadership team. And I understand I didn't necessarily go out looking for a franchise business. It just happened to be the business that I saw an opportunity in was a franchise system. And so one of our businesses today, which is the Arcadec outdoor living business, was a business based in Richmond, Virginia, uh, had been franchising for 15 years or so, but it had run into tough times in the in the mid 2000 timeframe, this 2000, late 2005 when I was looking at it. And it was upside down financially and, and bleeding cash. And while the franchisees in the field were doing well, the franchisor economics had, um, uh, had fallen apart. And so the, the board, there was an advisory board in place to the founder who owned the control stake in the business at the time. And they were looking to bring in a fresh perspective to try to lead the turnaround of the business. And when I was leaving investment banking, I was looking for a company that would ha that had a couple of attributes that was in a in a in an industry sector where there would be good long term consumer trends. And when I looked at a business like Arcadec that feeds into you know the home improvement and home maintenance desires of American homeowners, I thought that was a really good trend. I mean. Home ownership is such a fundamental American value, and people take great pride in their homes, and homes are an emotional asset in addition to a financial asset. And I thought that was a good long-term trend to try to build a business around. Secondarily, I was looking for a company that would be protected from some trends that I had seen negatively impact businesses when I was an investment banker. And, and those trends are, I saw pieces of businesses and industries that were moved offshore, whether it was to Asia, to Mexico, to Eastern Europe, areas where labor rates were, were lower than the U.S. Or I think more importantly, I'd seen businesses that um, had uh, negatively been negatively impacted with the movement of the transaction online. And when I saw a business like Architect, I realized you can't move it offshore you can't move it online. The work always has to be done locally. Mm -hmm. So I wound up having an opportunity to step into the leadership role and invest in that business at the beginning of 2006. And that kind of launched my my career in, in franchising. And how many units strong was Architect back in those days, Chris? Yeah, it was somewhere in the around 50 units. I can't remember the exact number, but uh, roughly 50 locations uh, throughout the United States. And today, how many of your 250 are Architect? Yeah. Today, it's, it's our strategy there. Our unit counts have grown, but not tremendously. We're roughly 60 units. What has grown significantly is the average unit volumes. So the system sales of the business unit have grown significantly because we spend a lot of time philosophically, culturally, and just where our team invests their effort is driving growth across the existing franchise systems. And so we've diversified the business unit and we've had a lot of success raising the AUVs to help improve the unit economics of, of the franchise system. So at that point in time, it was just Architect and Architect alone. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. And so the concept of outdoor living brands was born where and when along the way? When did the vision or the line of sight rise to a suite of brands that complement each other? Yeah. So as I was, you know, first rolling up my sleeves and, and guiding Architect through a turnaround in 2006, as I got involved in franchising, I, I realized I needed some help to, to figure out this business model that I didn't know that well as an investment banker. And I 
I started attending as many industry events as I could, especially, you know, IFA events. And I think exposure at IFA led me to see businesses that were multi-branded, whether it was driven brands, whether it was um, for service brands, the Dwyer Group, now Neighborly. And as I looked around franchising and I saw this industry that I think today has you know, roughly 4,000 different concepts, many of whom are very small, um, as you know, kind of in an, from an investment banker's perspective, I thought that the industry would see some consolidation over time. And I thought that the multi-branded platforms that I saw were a really smart way for franchisors to build scale on businesses that when your your revenue stream, your core revenue stream is, is a percentage of sales royalty off the retail dollar, that's a relatively low percentage, it can t- be a, take a, a while to build scale. So the idea of packaging multiple brands together was driven in part by looking around the industry, borrowing some ideas from, I think, some other leaders in, in the industry. And we decided as, as a group of shareholders in that 2006, 2007 timeframe that, well, of course, we wanted to grow our architect business. We wanted to, over time, diversify ourselves into a multi-branded franchise. And our strategy was, let's see if we can find other businesses that cater to the same lifestyle desires and needs of American homeowners, and I think equally importantly, cater demographically to the same exact client. So across all of our businesses, um, the, the demographics and psychographics of the consumers who buy our products and services are the same. And so we wanted to have a unifying theme as we set out on a multi-brand, you know, planning a multi-branded strategy in 2007. And that led us to make some acquisitions in 2008 and 2009, which is when we launched out our living brands as part of that effort. So you've dropped a nugget here for the audience, and I want to go back and put a spotlight on it. You came in in 05, 06. You had zero franchising experience as an investment banker, but you did go to school by attending IFA and getting the value prop of correspondence with others in the business and meeting other people. Talk to the audience about what that impact of IFA led to for you and how important that was. Yeah, I, I can remember the first IFA convention I went to, which I think was in, in 2006. And you know, as an investment banker, I had attended a lot of industry events before, really as a networking and a, and a client acquisition you know, platform. And I, and I was really impressed at IFA about how collaborative franchisors are and how willing that franchisors in different industry sectors are to share their journeys, to share best practices and ideas. And I, I came back from that first IFA session. I still have the, the, the pad of paper that I took notes on. And it was something like 28, 29 pages of notes that I came home with. And so my eyes were opened up about how big the industry is. And then I also realized how willing people are to help you. And so as a new guy coming into the sector, trying to learn a lot, I realized that there were people out there who were fighting through the same issues of trying to figure out the right ways to identify talented, driven, well-capitalized people to join your systems as franchisees, or whether they were working on initiatives to, to, initiatives to drive change and drive improvements in their franchise systems. Regardless of what the industry is, there was, there was commonality in the functions and the strategies and the tactics. And the industry is very, very willing and, and seemingly open to, to allow people to come in and, and kind of pick the brains and go to school on people who've been there and done it before. And so we start, you know, both attendance and industry events, building relationships. And then from time to time, we would go see other franchisors and people would, you know, be willing to host us for a day of, of meetings to kind of sh- talk about ideas and best practices. And, and hopefully, hopefully they learned a, you know, a couple things from us over the years. And, and our team has learned some things by sitting down and meeting with other franchisors. The other thing I took out of this is, is that Architect as a business is what I used to call a man in a van kind of a business, a very fractured kind of segment of the market where anybody just, you know, goes out and picks up a truck and, and can start becoming 
a contractor, and then you bring professional services and management to an industry that really probably had very little of any of that going on. At the same time as you were doing that for the franchisees, it seems that coming to IFA for you had a, a similar aha moment in that now you've learned that there's this whole segment of the market with similar brands that could call all be brought together. And you actually had a similar or parallel experience, it sounds like, as you would hope that your franchisees have. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it was, um, you know, what we, what we try to do on the franchising side, as you said, the spaces that we're in, all of our, our industry sectors tend to be highly, highly fragmented mom and pop type of industries. And we bring professionalism and the comfort of dealing with a national brand to the consumer. And I think on the franchising side, franchising is also a relatively fragmented business with the vast majority of franchisors still being relatively small. So I think our, our franchisees have that when they choose to align with one of our brands, they have the benefit because of the multi-branded platform that we've built of aligning themselves with a larger organization and we also have inherently diversification options built in. If they build scale in whichever brand they start with, we, we have uh, given our franchisees the opportunity to you know, expand in the profile of the businesses they're building locally by adding a second or a third brand to their, their local operations. So what was brand number two and when did it happen? Yeah, so brand number two was Outdoor Lighting Perspectives in the fall of 2008. So I formed Outdoor Living Brands in the summer of 2008 and wound up partnering with a gentleman who was on our advisory board that didn't have an ownership stake, but he liked the business strategy of building a multi-branded um, outdoor lifestyle-centric franchise company. And so Mark Mullins was his name, and, and he and I partnered together, and we acquired the control stake in Architect. Uh, in June of 2008, we bought out the founder of that business. I had a minority ownership position at the time. And then we had been negotiating with uh, the founder of Outdoor Lighting Perspectives uh, in that summer. And we wound up acquiring Outdoor Lighting Perspectives in the fall of, of 2008. And then wound up acquiring Mosquito Squad was the third concept in the first quarter of 2009. So we put those three companies together from between June of 2008 and and uh, March of, of 2009, right as 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 most will remember the the, the worst recession that hopefully will um, will encounter in our lifetime. Our, our timing was not ideal, but at the end of the day, it, it was our, our our strategy was we're long term investors, and so while the, the the waters were a little rougher right out of the gate than we had anticipated because of the recession, we knew we were going into these investments for long periods of time. And so we put our heads down. We started integrating these three companies together. We looked to take out duplicate costs um, of the three standalone P&Ls as we were constructing outdoor living brands in that 2008-2009 timeframe. Peter Squad grew through your ownership from how many units do, where, where were you, Marty Brands took it over from you at the end of December? Yeah, so when we acquired Mosquito Squad in, in 2009, it was a very young, early stage startup concept that had roughly, I think it was a 15 locations, and it was producing uh, an entirety of 1.1 million of system sales. And less than 10 years later, when we divested the business, it was slightly over 250 units that were producing well over 60 million in, in system sales. So we had a, um, we had a wonderful a role, I think, with that business in that category. Um, the outdoor pest control space, which Mosquito Squad was the pioneer um, of uh, creating a, a service offering that works very well for homeowners who are interested in you know, being pest and disease free in their property and protecting families and kids and pets um, that category took off, and Mosquito Squad was the first player in that space. And you know, as we were having success, you know, accelerating the growth of Mosquito Squad, like any business, uh, it saw competitors uh, come in, and the sector continued to to expand. And so, you know, for us, it was a it was a business model that had a lot of of I think core attributes uh, that we look for uh, in terms of a, a relatively simple business model that therefore is replicatable and repeatable by franchisees, and most importantly, really strong unit economics, where the business model offered high gross profit margins 
and a recurring revenue stream. Um, as long as you, you take care, good care of your customers and you treat them well, you know, those customers were coming back season after season. And so there was a, an annuity aspect to the business model uh, the, and a high gross profit margin. So, you know, the, the, the concept of, a, of a, a business model that fits a need for the consumer, a simple, replicatable, repeatable business model, and then strong unit economics based on the margin performance and a recurring revenue component just really was a great combination. And, and we uh, very much enjoyed our, our, our time in, in developing that system and, and uh, wish it nothing but the best now that it's in the hands of, of authority brands. And then Renew Crew and Conserva Irrigation to round out the discussion about the existing portfolio. Talk a little bit about those. Sure. So in, in uh, 2012-2013 timeframe, we were approached by the founder of a business called Wood Renew that was involved in cleaning and staining and sealing wood decks. And he saw the, the volume. Archideck is, is by far the largest deck and porch and patio builder in, in, in uh, North America. And he approached us initially with the idea of a trade alliance, um, whereby we could introduce Wood Renew services to our Archideck clients. And as we got to know the, the founder of that business, and as we got to know um, the business model itself, it, it led us to ultimately acquire Wood Renew as the platform for a new business that we wanted to develop. So when we acquired Wood Renew, um, we stood before the franchisees at the convention before making the acquisition and said, we want everyone to know that if we acquire this business, our vision is different than what Wood Renew is. Wood Renew as a system, the, the average unit volumes were very, very modest. And in our heads, good franchising first and foremost starts with strong unit economics for the franchisees. They need to be able to generate, you know, return on the investments to launch the business. And of course, while, you know, make a good income along the way while they're operating the business and then be able to sell it someday and create net worth for themselves and their, and their families. And we felt that the unit economics of Wood Renew were not strong enough in and of itself to be a, um, an attractive model. And so our strategy from day one before acquisition was that we were going to use the intellectual property of how to clean and care for wood as part of a new business that we were going to develop that is what is Renew Crew. So we use the phrase internally of let's become agnostic about the end, the building material, whatever hard exterior surface that's there, um, whether it's concrete, whether it's asphalt, whether it's paver patios, whether it's um, siding of all kinds, brick, vinyl, aluminum, stucco. Our idea was any exterior hard surface at a residential or commercial property where dirt, mold, mildew, pollen accumulate. We wanted to develop the right um, processes and procedures, environmentally friendly cleaners, colorants if the material needs it, and then protectants to keep that surface um, protected from sun, wind, and, and, and rain. Um, our, so we, we embarked on a diversification of that business in the first four or five years after we acquired it in order to give the franchisees more services to sell when they were on a property, as well as to increase the frequency of the revenue from each client. So in, Wood Renew had a business model where it was doing a deck every three or four years for a client. We were looking to broaden the service offering so that our franchisees could both raise the average ticket as well as increase the frequency of revenue per customer and hopefully get on site once a year, twice a year, because we're now cleaning, sealing, and protecting different services uh, surfaces at their, at their properties. So when the acquisition of, of Wood Renew was made, it really started the greenfield development that took us about five years to build what is today the Renew Crew business model. And then rounding it all off with Conserva Irrigation. Conserva Irrigation is a it's a great story. It came to us as an idea in 2012. One of our franchisees, who is was both a Mosquito Squad franchisee and an outdoor lighting prospectus franchisee um, in the Twin Cities area of, of Minnesota, knew that we had a, a desire and a, and a business strategy to build out a platform of of related home services uh, uh, businesses that were all exterior focused. And he had a little bit of a background in the irrigation space, and he felt that the irrigation industry, which is like the, our other industries, highly, highly fragmented, unsophisticated trade contractor space, 
he felt that there was an opportunity to bring some professionalism into that space and bring a national brand into a sector where there are very few regional companies, much less national companies. And so we began in um, 2012 testing the development of a repair and maintenance oriented irrigation business that would take care of the, in, in, in the residential world, there are 50 million irrigation systems in the ground in front of residential homes and countless millions in front of commercial and, and retail properties across the U.S. Most of those systems, many of those systems are old. They've been in the ground for years. They're not overly well maintained, certainly not on a proactive basis, and they waste a tremendous amount of water. Everyone I've ever talked to has seen examples of irrigation systems watering driveways and streets and uh, sidewalks. Everyone's seen irrigation systems running, you know, in the middle of a rain event. And according to the EPA and according to the Irrigation Association, for homes that have irrigation systems installed, 59% of the water consumed by that home is through the irrigation system. And water is the world's most precious resource. So when we got involved in the irrigation business, we thought part of what we want to bring to the market as a differentiation is both a focus on you know, professionalism in a highly fragmented trade contractor industry, but also a water conservation theme that's a bit counterintuitive when you're in the, the irrigation sector. So in 2012, we started testing this business model in the Twin Cities. It resonated with residential and commercial property owners. It scaled up. It offered good unit economics in our first test market. And so we packaged up this business model after two years operating it there. And we took a franchise agreement and we stripped out the economics. There were no franchise fees. There were no royalties. We called it a pilot license agreement. And we licensed the business model to eight other parties in different markets around the U.S. that were willing to test this business model with us to see if we could replicate the success we'd had in the initial pilot market in a handful of other pilot markets across the country. And we operated those pilot markets, the franchisees with us operated those pilot licensees, I should say, operated those for two more years. And we saw the same thing. We saw the service offering was, was accepted by the residential and commercial property owners. The unit economics scaled up nicely. And so after roughly four plus years of testing that business model across um, eight markets, we felt like we had the recipe for success. And so in the first part of 2017, we made a business decision that we were going to franchise conserve irrigation. Uh, we did the legal work. We constructed a franchise um, team. And we then uh, gave the, those pilot licensees the opportunity to convert convert to franchisees on June 1st of 2017. And they did. And then we launched a franchise development effort. And so we just have crossed through our two-year anniversary with Conserva. And as we, as we sit here today, we have roughly 85 operating territories that are operated by 45 to 50 individual franchisees. And so we're having a nice rapid start to our the launch of our conservative irrigation business. Well, it's an impressive story. A lot of work has been done over the span of the years that you've been uh, sitting at the helm, Chris. We're going to come back after a quick break, and we're going to take a look at the franchise side of all of this and how you're bringing all these brands to market and what kinds of opportunities are being made available and who should be jumping in and learning more about all. So let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back after this. Franchise Today will be right back, but first, a word from our sponsors. This portion of Franchise Today is brought to you by Zoracle, providers of spot-on profiles, the gold standard of assessment tools that assure you're selecting the right franchisees every time. Unlike DISC or others that simply gauge personality or communication styles, Zoracle's spot-on assessments are all franchise-specific and based upon seven sciences that nail the results each and every time. Your prospects simply answer a few questions online, and like magic, Zoracle's algorithms scientifically slice, dice, and analyze their thresholds for risk, their business acumen, and even their propensity for single or multi-unit ownership. Zoracle's spot-on analysis is like having a crystal ball. But there's no hoodoo here. 
It's all based upon science that flawlessly determines franchisee, franchisor compatibility, and accurately predicts performance. Why don't you schedule a demo today and take a complimentary look and see for yourself. It's the closest thing to a sure thing. Zoracle, spot on assessments, based on science, but delivering results that seem simply magical. Check them out at www.zoracleprofiles.com. Franchise Today is produced and presented each week by FRM Solutions, providing best-in-class CRM and document management software designed specifically for franchising. FRM enables real-time business intelligence, communication, and collaboration between all members of the franchisor's team and their prospective and existing franchisees. This empowers your team to simply and seamlessly track, access, and manage all communication to and from prospective and existing franchisees, including texts. Legal and compliance is simplified too with FRM's document management, and even site visits can be digitally facilitated and scored using FRM. Make today the day you give FRM a look and assure that all of your candidate and franchisee correspondence, including texts, are being permanently tracked and archived in candidate and franchisee records. FRM even provides state-of-the-art digital experiences for your prospective franchisees, replacing old-style virtual brochures. There are no long-term contracts required. Multiple upgrades are offered each year at no additional cost. No excuses, just solutions on the web at frmsolutions.com. Appreciate it, Chris, uh, your patience in allowing me to pay some bills as well. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. So let's talk now about how all this comes together under the Outdoor Living Brands umbrella and how you bring this to market. Are you offering multiple opportunities depending upon territory or brand? Are these single unit area development? Tell us a little bit about the development side and how it all comes together. Yeah, our our historical um, focus on, on development is almost all of our franchisees have started with a single brand and generally with a single territory. And we the, we have uh, a great track record, I think, of assisting uh, franchisees that we affectionately refer to as corporate refugees, people who are leaving corporate America for one reason or another. They've always kind of thought about wanting to be in small uh, small business ownership, and and a franchise is is the vehicle for them to access the training, the coaching, and the support and make the transition out of corporate America into, into small business ownership. And so we found historically that our businesses and the sectors they're in appeal to those corporate refugees and that as they, they rely on us to learn the business model and learn what they need to be successful in that industry. And then as they scale that first unit, it's not uncommon at all for them to come back and license additional territories to build scale in their local market, or in some cases, to license additional brands. So roughly 80% of our franchisees are fit that profile of the, the corporate refugee that I referred to. The other 20% tend to be people that were in the industries of our underlying businesses one way through one way or another. In some cases, you know, for example, conservative irrigation, we have a handful of franchisees in the first two years that ran existing irrigation companies but they liked our business model, our brand, our water conservation focus, the technology platform that we've developed to run that business efficiently on. And they have converted their businesses, in some cases, very sizable multi-million dollar businesses, converted those businesses to to conserve irrigation. So we we have a mix of industry players, whether it's conversions or in some cases it's it's a, an add-on or diversification play where perhaps it's a landscaper who's looking for additional services to offer to his customer base. That business will come to us and say they'll license an outdoor lighting perspectives or a renew crew as a way of diversifying what they offer in, the, in their end market. So we, we think our businesses fit those two major categories uh, fairly well, and we've had good success uh, helping franchisees either coming from the industry or coming right out of corporate America. Brokers, do you use brokers at all? Or what's your position on brokers in, in terms of your brands? Yeah, we do We do use brokers. Uh, I, I'm a, uh, a believer in, in 
when I look at the industry broadly, and I'll, I'll reference the Franchise Update Media Group does their, their benchmarking study every year from, of franchise development, and they show, I think, the most recent 2018 numbers are, are roughly 15% of deals um, are referred to franchisors from brokers. And, so, and while I know, you know there's different schools of thought across the industry about, about brokers and some uh, franchisors get frustrated at the expense of the broker community, we look at it as saying, if we weren't finding ways to work with the broker community, we would be losing out on 15% of the, D, of the franchisees that we should otherwise be, be finding. And so we think it's important to play in all the channels whether it's portals, whether it's brokers, whether it's um, shows, and certainly you know heavy reliance on on digital marketing in terms of finding potential uh, franchisees, and so our philosophy from the the marketing and lead gen side of franchise development is that we need to be active in all of those sectors if we're going to be successful finding as many talented, driven, ambitious well-capitalized people as possible. So you talk about corporate refugees, and then you talk about people coming from within the trade. There's a lot of cultural disparity there, I would think. And I think culture is a large part of your business, as I mentioned in the introduction. So how do you bring all that together and make all that flow where people coming from opposite ends on the pendulum never stops in the middle? We all know that. How do you bring that together and make it all work? Yeah, I think it starts with a philosophy in the development process that we have to understand what the goals of our franchisee are. And what I mean by that is everyone who comes to us has, whether it's a corporate refugee who maybe has certain unmet career goals, income goals, lifestyle goals, wealth creation goals, or if it's someone coming out of the trade and they're, they're, they're struggling with something in their business, maybe they don't fully understand how marketing has shifted in the digital arena over the last five, seven, 10 years, or maybe they're struggling to, to find the right technology platform to run their business on. We have to understand what their pain points are, what their goals are. And so what we, what we teach our team and what I think our team has really, really embraced is that franchising is ultimately in the goal achievement business. And the way we bring it together is to understand what each individual franchisee what will they define as success? And every franchisee needs slightly different things from us. The trade player may understand some of the underlying field operations of the business model, but they need more helping, whether it's on the marketing side, whether it's on perhaps it's the business management side to really track and analyze their operations. We have to understand the needs of each individual franchisee combined with what do they define as success so we can help them build scale, build proficiency in the execution of our business model, and they can ultimately reach whatever their personal goals are through the operation of our business. And that's, I think it's, that helps create the culture and alignment between franchisee and franchisor, where our franchisees recognize that we genuinely care about their success. And the only way that we are successful in growing our company is through assisting our franchisees to build proficiency and scale in the local operations. What percentage would you say of your population are now operating multiple brands? It, it's, I would say um, it's less than 5% right now, but it, it has been growing each year. We have found that it is not, um, franchisees who are seeking growth, they have two decisions. They have, they have really two options. They can become multi-unit franchisees of the brand they started with, and we have a higher percentage that fall in that camp. Or in some cases, they can become multi-branded. And so I think franchisees, rightly so, realize if, I ha- if I'm looking in my market and I want to grow and I've done a great job with my first territory, if I add a second unit, you know, I already know that business. I'm already confident in my abilities to execute that. I'm not spreading my time across multiple things. So the multi-branded strategy, it, it, it is slightly more complicated because that operator then has to learn a, a, the fundamentals of a second business. And so as, as we have developed the, the brands over the years, we've also gotten better as a franchisor to make sure that we're having a thorough conversation with the franchisee that raises their hand and is, is contemplating adding a second or a third brand to make sure the recipe for success is there. 
What I mean by that is, do they have the depth in their management and leadership team so that the franchisee, him or herself, or are they going to hire a general manager to lead the second business? And are they willing to truly put the resources in place to launch that second business? And I'm saying it both from an HR personnel perspective, but equally importantly, from a, from a financial perspective. And so where we have gotten, I think, um, disciplined at making sure the franchisee may really be attracted to the strategy of trying to replicate in the local market what we're doing at the national level, but it doesn't serve them well. It doesn't serve us well if, if the expansion happens before their infrastructure of their first business is big enough and strong enough to withstand adding a second business and being uh, and, and spreading themselves across two so businesses. So I think the take-home value to those emerging franchisors that might be listening is um, slower is steadier. And sometimes you get where you're going quicker by slowing down and staying focused, keeping your eye on the ball instead of uh, you know, being attracted to the next shiny thing. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Absolutely. And, and I think like anything in life, sometimes you learn it the hard way where when we started this approach in, in 2009 and, and, and 10, and we started exploring multi-branded businesses, we made some mistakes like all businesses where we had franchisees who were in the top five of one system and they, they came to us and said, we really like, you know, brand number two, we want to add it. And Without a lot of thought, we licensed those businesses to those operators because we, we said they're really great operators. They're, they're top five or top 10 in their existing system. And it didn't always play out exactly as they hoped or we hoped because we had to learn that we needed to really make sure that the depth of their infrastructure in their company and their willingness to put people in place and to, to invest the financial resources to launch a second brand was really there. And so we've gotten better over the years as a multi-branded franchisor of sitting down with our franchisees. They, they come to Richmond where we're based and we we have, you know, what is analogous to a strategic planning session to take stock of, you know, where are they today and are they ready for uh, for the growth that they may want to get there, but may, maybe they need to put one or two things in place first. And so I think um, not, uh, it's not good for, for the franchisee. It's not good for the brand. It's not good for the franchisor. If you have a stumble where someone licenses a second brand and then, and then doesn't uh, succeed. And so, yeah, I agree with your statement, Stan, that slow and steady is much um, more appealing, at least from our corporate philosophy. Um, we're getting to the place where we're almost going to be out of time. And as amazingly as it is uh, to, for me to comprehend, we've been at this for close to an hour and it just feels like we've only just begun, Chris. But I ask all of my guests as we approach this point in our interview, if there's anything that I forgot to ask or didn't ask that you'd wished I did, if so, what would that be? What might that be? Yeah, I think, you know, is, is uh, really, I would, I would speak to prospective franchisees that may be you know, working to educate themselves on on the franchise business uh, and try to figure out what business model might make sense for them. There are there are so many really really good franchise business models across the United States. It is a wonderful um, uh, formula, I think, for people who want to get into business for themselves but need the the some expertise behind them to lower the risk associated with their making a change in their career and, and risking their family's net worth through the launch of the business. And so, you know, as they're, as they're seeking opportunities, you know, we think we're in great spaces. We think we're in businesses that are not fads. You know, we're not the, the latest and greatest food fad or, or fitness fad. Our businesses tap into Americans' desi desires to build and maintain their homes. And that's a good long-term consumer trend. And we bring you know, uh, long-term success with differentiated business models. And so, you know, hopefully uh, there's a lot of great options out there, but uh, like, like all franchisors, we, we never have enough talented, driven, ambitious, well-capitalized people. We're always looking for new people to join our brands. And so hopefully we'll, we'll find some folks that uh, will be good fits uh, for us. You bring to mind something I wanted to mention in today's podcast at some point, and just speaking as you did about franchisees, uh, this might be the perfect place to remind our audience that we're coming close to wrapping up the opportunity for you to nominate some of your franchisees. In fact, up to five of your franchisees for the best franchisee of the world competition. Uh, 
which is being hosted by MFV Expos, looking for franchisees with a compelling story of how franchising has changed their life and the lives of those around them. So this is your chance to get some great brand recognition, brand building, both for you as a franchisor, for those of you listening, and for your franchisees as well. Check it out because the October 5th, I believe, deadline for nominations is fast approaching. So just go to the web and look up bestfranchiseeoftheworld.com for more information. And you and your franchisee could win this competition, could find themselves not just on the grand stage here in the U.S., but on their way to Italy to compete in December for the best franchisee in the world competition where eight or nine other countries doing the same thing as I'm talking about here will be all rolling up together for the best franchisee of the world competition. And franchisors, just an FYI, should your franchisee win the U.S. competition, they, along with you, get to make the trip to Italy. So, Chris, I hope you, you're going to enter somebody, maybe a couple of, of your people as well. Great, great program, and I just had to steal the moment there to try to showcase that here as we approach the end of the interview. Uh, before we let you go today, Chris, how can people find you? How can they learn more about these brands and further the conversation with you personally should they choose to do so? Yeah, so folks that are, that are interested in learning more about Outdoor Living Brands and our four franchise programs, I would invite you to go to OutdoorLivingBrands.com. In fact, this week we'll be launching an updated version of our website and you'll find that it both will give you some background on the history and the construction of, of our company since we launched it in 2008. But I think more importantly, it'll it'll provide a high level overview of each of our four franchise brands and what makes them unique. And then it's a gateway into um, recruiting specific websites for for those those four brands for even more understanding. So OutdoorLivingBrands.com is a great, great place Chris. to start. This has been a real treat for me. I can't believe it's been as long as we've said, but let's not let another nine or 10 go by before we find ourselves in, in touch with each other once again. Is that a fair enough deal? I absolutely agree, Stan. I've really enjoyed it. I hope your listeners find it find it a good a good listen as well. So thanks we so much for having me We appreciate you being here, today. Chris, especially knowing that you're right on the front end of a week's vacation. Well-deserved, my friend. So while the heat of summer is subsiding, the fall calendar heats up for sure as September comes knocking with a franchise calendar that's chock full of expos and events. The IFA Franchise Action Network is just around the corner on September 9 through 11 in D.C. Franchise Expo Midwest follows that in Rosemont, Illinois, in the northwest suburbs of Chicago on the 13th and 14th. And then comes Franchise Springboard for emerging brands on the 18th through the 20th in Philly. And the month wraps with IFA's Franchise Ops and Development Conferences in New Orleans, September 25 and 6 and 7. Let's remember to subscribe to Franchise Today at Block Talk Radio. You can download us from iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, or virtually any place that podcasts are found. And remember, too, that you can even ask Alexa to play the latest episode of Franchise Today. Like us on Facebook, and until next week, I'm Stan Friedman, wishing you the best, the very best of all things franchising, and Franchise Today is out. Franchise Today is a production of FRM Solutions, providing best-in-class CRM tools to empower relationships with prospective and existing franchisees. No excuses, just solutions. Find them online at frmsolutions.com. Join Stan every Wednesday at noon Eastern for another live episode of Franchise Today. Or, as always, download episodes on demand at blogtalkradio.com or iTunes.